Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Deep in History. I'm Marcus Grodi, the host for this program, but really just a, a co-host because I'm joined with Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Hello, Monsignor. Hello, Marcus. Greetings to you. It's great to be able to join you uh, over the uh, Skype together, even though we've got to keep this social distancing. Of course, we do anyway, because you're up in up in Minnesota, and I'm down here in Ohio, but it's it's great to join you, and thank all of you for joining us on this new program. Uh, this is, I think, episode four of our Deep in History study of Irenaeus, uh, his very important book, Against Heresies. Um, and once again, the reason we're doing this uh, is, you know, as long as I've been doing this work for 27 years, uh, and doing the Deep in Scripture program, 23 years, the most common thing that we hear from men and women who discover the Catholic Church is how important the early church fathers was to them. And as you mentioned, Monsignor, in an earlier episode, that really it was because so many of us were, were influenced by John Henry Cardinal Newman, because mm -hmm. that was what opened up him. And But... For me, when I was in seminary, Protestant seminary, and a, and a pastor for all the years, if I ever touched a, a writing from the early church fathers, it was in a collection of statements from the early church that were hand-picked statements, and generally they were statements from the early fathers that uh, reinforced my Reformed Calvinist perspective. And you can always find a, a quote out of Justin or Clement or Irenaeus that can be made to fit almost anything, So, as you can do with Scripture. But uh, the value of what we're doing, Monsignor, is to really focus in depth on a very, very important book of the early church. And we could have focused on First Clement, we could have focused on uh, Justin's first apology. There's a lot of very important early books that we could have focused on, but but maybe as a reminder, two things I'd like to ask of you, Monsignor, before we jump into it. Two questions. Why, again, do you consider against heresies such a great place to start? And then number two, almost contradictory to what I just said, we're not going to go into absolute detail of all the beliefs of all the people that Irenaeus is pointing out as, as bad apples in the early church. Yeah, um, yes, indeed. Uh, well, St. Irenaeus is regarded as the first systematic theologian of the church. Um, I don't think there's anyone that we can point to before him that goes into such depth into the, um, the faith as he does. Uh, it's, it's an intimidating thing, though, taking on um, this work, as, as we've been discovering as 
we've been getting into it as well. And it does require, um, uh, you know, we're not going to have to, we won't be able to do it every jot and tittle. Yeah. Scholars have t talked about this over the years, how um, Irenaeus, his literary style is not something that moderns would feel comfortable with because <laughs> um, it's not, you know, it's not a consistent linear sort of argument. He jumps all over the place because <laughs> it was written probably over years, over a period of years. So, yeah, he again for those of you, especially if you're if you're not Catholics and you're looking into the early fathers for the first time, you're watching us. As I mentioned in a previous program, what so astounded me when I read Irenaeus was I've never in my life met a person that was so conversant with the Bible, as Irenaeus is. You know what I'm saying? He quotes everything, and he's just not grabbing a quote. They make sense in his arguments. He yeah. knew the Scriptures. And this is long before they had any concordance. Uh, they didn't have a Young's uh, concordance <laughs> there. Uh, he was doing—it's yeah. amazing. It is amazing. It is totally amazing. And, and that's what we want to go through. And the other thing that I find amazing is, um, as we look at this, and, I, and again, I want to whet the appetite of those of you that are looking at this big book. I mean, it's almost as big as uh, Gulag Archipelago. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a big, humongous book. But um, you, you come across things that he says already, matter-of-factly, in that in the end of the second century that we need to recognize, you know, later in the church, for example, so many Christians are going to reject baptismal regeneration. Well, that's assumed in Irenaeus and all the way through. In fact, he's pointing out amongst the Gnostics how they reject it. Yes. Yes. Remarkable. Yeah. So this is, and so what we're going to do, the, the title of this episode is, is Simon the Sorcerer. And uh, so we're going to focus on Simon the Sorcerer, and we'll get through to about page 68, 69, 70 of book one. If, you know, I, those are the page numbers of the particular version that we're using by John Keeble. Um, but before we get to that, our goal is to been, we're, we're going to go from major section to major section, but in between, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we're not going to absolutely get to, because often it's the intricate teachings of these bizarre teachers, and it, it just would be crazy to go through. But we're going to point out just a number of sections that uh, Monsignor and I think are important to, to not skip by. So let me they're just going to do five of them, and then we're going to jump into Simon Magus, Simon the Sorcerer, Simon the, the Sorcerer from Samaria, Samaria. So we'll begin in chapter 11, book 1, chapter 11, paragraph 1, and it's on page 35. And there's just one statement. I remember when I was reading this, it just jumped out at me, because here's what St. Irenaeus says. He says, 
It's right after he said, The real church hath all one and the same faith throughout the world, as we have said before, and that's what we covered last week. The one real church, one faith throughout the world. Then he says, Let us now take a view also of the unstable mind of these men, being as they are some two or three how they make not the same statements on the same subjects, but in their matter and their terms contradict one another. The reason I wanted to point that out is that that problem didn't cease with these guys. Oh, oh that's a really good point, Marcus. It's, it's the... The Catholic faith is what is um, one, consistent, found wherever you are in the world, the same. But, um, but these heretical groups just multiply, and they multiply, and um, they're inconsistent in terms of what they teach. Yeah, and private interpretation leads to that. And frankly, if you study in history, the last 2,000 years, if you were to graph our ability to communicate, all right, that we would have gone centuries with only being able to communicate by yelling. That was In the old, way old days, you know, uh, that's how they communicated. They yelled, you know. They talked or yelled. And then at some point, somebody invented a stylus, and they, they, they discovered you could write on stone. So then you had slabs of stone and, and, you know, little chunks of mud, you know, and that went for hundreds of years. And then somebody invented papyrus, and, and that went for a long time. And then sheepskin, that went for a long time. And that actually was the way communication was in the world up until the middle of the 15th century, right? I mean, it was on on paper, on papyrus, on, on stone tablets, uh, for, think about it, for a thousand years. And then printing changed everything. So then we go from printing in 1450 to now we got books being multiplied and spread out. Now more people are getting books. But still, the only way you can communicate with somebody is you give them a book or you give them a paper or you yell, you know, or you jump on your horse. But what happens, what I'm pointing out is pretty soon things began changing very quickly. And now all of a sudden, not only is it one-to-one, -one, but you're able to communicate. And so you get in the 1900s and pretty soon you got telegraphs and you've got radio and you've got telephones and then it gets into you got record players you get in the 20th century and you've got movies and you've got telephone and television and and then i mean now the graph is going up so fast it's ha it's happening quick and quick and quick every day goes by and a new thing happens and now here we are monsignor we're talking to one another um even more quickly than dick tracy did when he talked on his rest you know, phone. And, and my point for that is um, one thing that has done, it's escalated the same confusion that, that he's talking about here quicker. Oh. More people, more contradictions, more voices. 
uh, more authorities, uh, quicker, all over the place. And how do you decide whether someone's trustworthy? It's, it's more difficult today than it ever was before. And so that's the reason that St. Irenaeus recognizes the absolute need, because even at the time he was living, books were, it was about the time books were becoming more popular, right, Monsignor? Yeah. It, it, books were just getting... It was, they were just being invented, because we were moving from the scroll to the codex. Um, and a codex, which is our modern shape of a book, you know, with papers that are bound together or skins bound together on the side. It's easier to look things up. Um, In the old days, if you were reading on a scroll and you you just started and it said footnote number five, you had to scroll all the way through to the end just to look at the footnote. Then you'd have to roll it back up again, start over again. Oh, footnote number six. I got to go all the way to the end. Find it, roll it back up. <laughs> Codex made it a whole lot easier. <laughs> yeah, a whole lot easier. <laughs> All right, so the point of that little section is that Irenaeus is immediately pointing out the problem of private interpretation. If anything, that's what's behind everything that Monsignor and I are going to look at for the next two weeks. The problem of private interpretation of Scripture, of prophecies, of heretical books that are floating around. So that's behind it all. Then let's turn over to page 39, which is book one, chapter 12, paragraph four, the very bottom. I just wanted to point out here, the very bottom of 39, he's in the midst of talking about a number of the followers uh, of uh, of Simon that will that Monsignor will talk about next week, but he says, and there is much dispute too among them concerning our Savior. And if you just take that statement and look at the beginning of the next sentence, for while some say, now turn the page, go down to the second sentence in the middle, others affirm. Go down four sentence four sentences. Others say, go down four sentences, while others say, you go down five sentences, and certain other romancers of their number say. And then you go down to chapter 13, verse 1, and certain others are also there is of their party, boasting to be a corrector of his own teacher. All that to point out. The, the craziness of this home. You know, there, where's the authority? It just reminds me, Marcus, of, of um, sorry, we're, we're, when we're communicating, um, it's almost as though I'm on the moon right now because <laughs> <laughs> you remember those early moon shots, you know, it took a while for the, right, right. the, the voice to get there. But I remember, Marcus, I think it, it was your first, Coming home, uh, journey home program. You interviewed Tom Howard. Tom Howard, yes. And I remember Professor Howard said um, he described himself as being from a split of a split of a split. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the dilemma. And and the other dilemma is 
Here we are in the early church. We're only, this is 175 when he's writing this. So 150 or so years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, Pentecost, the start of the church, all that went on. It's 100 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, all this stuff has been happening in these early years. And already, as Paul and John would predict, that there would be this rise of other gospels. And here they are. And, um, you know, it isn't just new. This is over a period. Others have done, others say this, others say this, why others say this, and others say this, and others. And that's in Christianity today. And the amazing thing is, you know, Tom Howard is saying he was from a, a break, from a break, from a break, a split, from a split, from a split. But there are so many people today that are in their little church, and they don't even it doesn't even cross their mind anymore that their church is a split from a split from a split from a split from a split. It doesn't even cross their mind anymore whether, or even they don't even care anymore whether the particular theology of their little church of what's happening now connects with any thread of apostolic truth. And we're going to see that's the most important thing to Irenaeus. Yeah. Does, does it connect? That connection. That's the connection. Okay, the third point is over to page 56. And you know, a lot of these things I'm pointing out now are, are, are just all connecting the same thing. Uh, I, this really jumped out at me, page 56. Now, this is book one, chapter um, 16, paragraph three. And I'm going to read this. Monsignor, and what I found, what, what this fascinated me was Irenaeus was telling his people, basically in the middle of this explanation, he's saying, I want you to listen to me because you need to be able to respond to this craziness. So here's what St. Irenaeus says. He says, I know well indeed that thou, beloved, going over all of this, wilt greatly ridicule this madness of theirs so wise in its own conceit. So number one, Irenaeus is doing this because he believes that by grace, these people will recognize this craziness and break free. Number one, he's assuming that this will help them see. Then he goes on, but worthy of bewailing are they who in so cold and forced a way exposed to scorn so high worship and the greatness of that power, which is truly unspeakable, and such vast economies of God by their alpha and beta and certain numbers. So number two, these false teachers are worthy of ridicule for, because they're scorning the high worship of God. The worship, the liturgy. And you'll, if we took time to go into the details, we'd find, in fact, uh, back on uh, page 39, if you went back to it, it shows how they were ridiculing the Eucharist and putting their old spin to it. You know, the, and maybe they think they're doing something that's good. And so the, there's the point where... The right intentions don't make it right. They're ridiculing the very worship of God. Number three, I'll go on. 
Irenaeus says, and as many as withdraw from the church and have faith in these old wives' fables, verily, they are self-condemned. He's very strong in this. The leaving of the church to follow these false teachers brings upon people self-condemnation. Yeah. And Monsignor, that's what the church still teaches. In, it does in, indeed. In Lumen Gentium 14, those cannot be saved once they have come to know that the church is necessary for salvation if they do not remain or return. That's what the church teaches. That's a very powerful text. So number one, he's hoping this will help them stay in the church. Number two, he's helping them see that what they're doing is ridiculing the very liturgies that they gather every week. Number three, he's warning them that if they follow them, they're bringing on themselves condemnation. Then number four, he goes on, whom Paul commands us after a first and second admonition to reject. So he's pointing actually to Titus chapter 3, verse 11 and 10, where Paul says those that... You need to reject these schismatics. Don't follow them. So that's number four. Number five, he goes on, but John, the disciple of the Lord, hath enhanced their condemnation, not willing that so much as hail should be said by us to them. For he, saith he, that biddeth them hail is partaker of their evil deeds." And with reason, for there is no peace, saith the Lord to the impious. So he's warning them, just, you need to be careful. You don't hang out with these impious people. And we've become so flippant about that in our modern world. But at the time, he, Irenaeus was recognizing the danger of, of even saying, hey, how you doing? Befriending them because it's so easily drawn away. And then one last thing, he says, number six, if you will, and impious above all impiety are these who affirm the maker of heaven and earth, the only almighty God above whom is no other God to have been produced from a defect and that the produce of another defect so that by their account, he is an emanation from a third defect. So, I mean, that gets into some of their goofy theology, but the point is, yes, they affirm God the creator, but they belittle him as an emanation of all those that come after him. Yeah, and um, we'll, in, in, a, in a few years, um, Origin of Alexandria writes this amazing book against Celsus, who was a, a pagan critic of Christianity. And one of the things that Celsus was, would talk about is these Gnostics, these, the Gnostic ideas of God are just, they're ludicrous by even pagan standards. And, um, and they were bringing disrepute on the church. Yeah, one of the problems, and you'll talk about Marcion next week, was how do you connect the Old Testament God with the New Testament God? The Old Testament God seems to be judgmental. The New Testament God's all lovey-dovey. So how do you collect the two? In the other issue these men dealt with, how do you take a spirit, infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, perfect being, 
How, do you, how does he have any connection with this physical, mortal world, sinful world? So they have to figure out ways to, to have some kind of connections. And that's where all these emanations come from that the Gnostics. Yeah. It's their way of trying to explain something. Okay, quickly, a fourth thing that I want to point out is on page 65, um, chapter, still book one, chapter 21, paragraph four. I just want to point out really quickly, um, it begins, uh, but some of them say that bringing to the water is superfluous, but mix oil and water together, and with invocations like what we have said, cast it on the head of the initiated, and this they will have to do be redemption. Uh, and they too anoint him with balsam. Others again, rejecting all these, affirm that the mystery of the unspeakable and invisible power must not be wrought by visible and corruptible creatures, nor that of the things inconceivable and incorporeal and remote from sense by sensible and bodily things, but that it is perfect redemption simply to know well the unspeakable greatness. Uh, For that defect and passion having been caused by ignorance and the whole that is framed out of this ignorance is done away with by gnosis, by knowledge. And that so knowledge is the redemption of the inner man, and that it is neither bodily, for the bodily body is corruptible, nor animal, for the animal soul too comes of defect and is moreover a kind of dwelling house of the spirit. The redemption, therefore, must needs also be spiritual, for that by knowledge the inner and spiritual man is redeemed, and that they are content with the right knowledge of all things, and that this is real redemption. So in that paragraph, we see a little summary of the the Gnostic idea, but the main thing is baptism doesn't do anything, they're saying. Yeah. You know, it's a spiritual thing. It's nothing with our bodies. It's nothing physical. It's spiritual. And Monsignor, that heresy is still around today, right? Oh, my goodness. Yes, it is. <laughs> well, well put. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a summary yeah. of this problem of the spirit and the body. And as Catholics, we emphasize that as a person, we are spirit and body. Both. Not either or. Or as he said, I loved he said it there, you know, that, um, you know, a kind of dwelling house of the spirit. That the, 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 our animal part is just a dwelling part of the spirit, and the redemption is of the spirit. What do we say in the creed every week? We believe in the resurrection of the body. The resurrection of the body. And of course, that was a problem for the Nazis. Hey, one last thing, Monsieur, just on the next page, and then I'll turn it over to you to talk about good old Simon. And that is on chapter 22, 1. I'll read this. I know it's long, but I, I, I just think it's really good to hear. Because once again, with all these contrary, so many views, they differ from one another. It says just at the end of 21, whereas they differ from each other, both in doctrine and the mode of teaching, and those who are more recently accounted among them affect daily to find something new and to bear fruit such as no one ever thought of. It is hard to write out all their opinions, he says. I love that when he says that 
And then he yeah. goes into this section. I want to read this because I just think this is it's just great. He says, but we holding the rule of faith, i.e. that there is one God Almighty who created all things by his word and adapted them and made all out of not being to be, as the scriptures saith, for by the word of the Lord the heavens were established, and all the power of them by the breath of his mouth. And again, all things were made by him, and without him was nothing made. Yea, not one of all was accepted, but the Father made all by him whether visible or invisible, sensible or intelligible, temporal with a view to some economy or everlasting and eternal, not by angels nor by any virtue severed from his own mind, for the God of all hath need of nothing, but both by his word and his spirit, making and ordering and guiding and giving being to all. He who made the world, for in truth the world consists of all these things. He who molded man. He, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, above whom is no other God, no beginning, no virtue, no fullness. And those are names of the Gnostic gods, virtue. And that was He, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we shall shew this rule, I say, we holding very diverse and many as their sayings are, easily convict them of having erred from the truth. For almost all existing heresies affirm indeed that there is one God, but by a wrong opinion alter him, becoming unthankful to their maker, even as the Gentiles of idolatry. I, I just wanted to read that because we see there the kernel, there's the rule of faith that in what, 150 years will become the Nicene Creed. You know, this is long before the Nicene Creed. And, but also, he is starting to get into those phrases specifically to help understand God in contradiction to what the Gnostics are saying, which is what's in the Nicene Creed. You know, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. I mean, these are phrases that were added to the Creed to contradict false teachings. Irenaeus is already starting to do that. But the, to me, the uniqueness of Irenaeus is that he sticks with Scripture. It's a bit like John Henry Cardinal Newman's theory of the development of doctrine, which is it begins with an acorn and eventually becomes an oak. Well, we're kind of at the sprouting stage of, of many of the theologies that will come out later. Uh, this is the acorns, and it's starting to sprout. It's really early in that development. Any thought on that before we jump into Simon, Monsignor? Yeah, well, I think um, you, what you the, these last two texts that you pointed out are um, they jump out at me because how Saint Irenaeus is invoking the people's experience, the faithful's experience with the sacraments. Yeah. Um, the Eucharist and here baptism yeah. um, as a way of helping them understand why these Gnostic heretics are what they're proposing is so evil because they would empty the sacraments of their efficacy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's a very interesting argument he makes here. And, and the other one that I just wanted to say was um, that rule of faith 
in that of course is the creed. Um, and you're right. We don't have the creed at this point. Um, you know, it hasn't been printed out on a prayer card to put in your pocket (laughs) because what we, what we know is that was the creed, the basic structure of the apostles creed was current at this point. I think the earliest that we have is from St. Hippolytus when he wrote his apostolic tradition, maybe just 10 years or so later after Irenaeus. Um, that's the first one, actually, text that we have of the Apostles' Creed. But the faithful, when they were baptized, they were they memorized that creed, and and that was close to their heart. And Irenaeus is invoking that here. Yeah, again, it's yeah. he's not creating it. It's a part of their life. He's assuming it. He's building yeah. on it. That's so right. we're talking yeah. about something that predates Irenaeus. That was so that so predated him and his people that he could build their faith on it. And they don't have a catechism sitting in their living room. They don't have no. a TV, internet. What they have is what they hear. And so that's why Irenaeus is saying, don't listen to these people. They may say there's one God, but they're twisting him to fit their own agenda. And now we get to a very important person in that problem that Irenaeus points out as the founding father, if you will. Monsignor. The founding father, Simon from Samaria. We were having a good conversation about what we should call him. (laughs) Simon the magician, Simon the sorcerer, Simon of Samaria, Simon Magus. Um, um, it's, It's a fascinating story about him. What I find so interesting about what's going on here is that um, especially now as we're trying to get into the this unspeakable complex called Gnosticism, is that Irenaeus points us back. We know a source. He says the source is that Simon we meet up with in the Acts of the Apostles um, in Acts chapter 9, um, where the Simon suddenly appears, um, a magician in Samaria um, had been seemingly converted by Philip. Um, but when he um, finally comes to Peter, he's bargaining for power. So he offers money for power, and and Peter uh, repudiates him. Um, so Acts chapter 8, 9 through 24 is the biblical uh, references that we have for this Simon. Just a fascinating story. In one of the commentaries I read about Simon, the, the author of the commentary assumes that Simon didn't believe and that his only reason for doing this was to make money. And and I, the more I read the account in Scripture, I kind of questioned that because as you know from your pastoral work, it isn't always that black and white. Yeah. Um, you know, someone can have an authentic conversion to Christ, which seems to be what happened with Simon. I mean, it, 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 he was really impressed, and he, he really, it says, believed what Philip said and was baptized. And But 
as the church continues to emphasize, that doesn't mean he didn't have free will. And all of us, every one of us, uh, has to be careful of the way the devil can try and pull us away from the truth. And, and in many ways, I see that as a, a, who Simon was. You know, It's a bit like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. Yeah. He had a chance. I think, Marcus, I think that's a very good point. I'm just going to give you a few, just a little bit of a, a sense of how Simon figures in early apostolic history once we uh, move on from um, this encounter in Acts chapter 8. Um, we next hear about Simon uh, almost 100 years later um, from Justin Martyr. Uh, Justin writes about him in his first apology. And here we have some extra details into the source of who this Simon was, that he was from this town called Gita, G-I-T-T-A, in Samaria. And that was close to what is today modern-day Nablus, um, where where Justin Martyr himself had come from. And, and Justin tells us that he came to Rome during the reign of the Emperor Claudius um, uh, in the year 41 to 54. Now that is very interesting. Um, hmm. as, as he moves out of uh, Palestine um, about you know about 10 years after uh, the death and resurrection of our Lord, we find him in Rome. And there he made quite a splash. Um, according to Justin, his magic tricks won the attention of the emperor. Justin says the emperor was so fascinated with him, he erected a statue. And Justin says almost all the Samaritans and a few even of the other nations worship this man and confess him as the first god. <laughs> and a woman who went about with him at this time called Helena who had formerly been a prostitute. They say she was the first idea generated by him. Well, we'll get into that crazy things in, in a moment, but Justin tells us that, um, that uh, he figures in the early years of the Church of Rome. And um, now we're, we depend on a lot of um, apocryphal literature to try to figure out what's going on, but it, it, I guess the point is it really deeply fascinated these early Christians in Irenaeus's time. Um, the Acts of Peter, um, beloved to Catholics, because that's where we have the account of um, Peter leaving Rome and meeting Christ hmm. on the Appian Way. And um, says, where, where are you going, Lord? And Jesus says to him, I'm going to Rome to be crucified a second time. Yeah. And Peter was so humiliated, he turned around and went back and faced his own martyrdom at that point. That's the Acts of Peter. But the, in the Acts of Peter, we also have this incredible account of Peter having to deal with Simon. Yeah. Um, and and one of I just one of those I just read one little passage in Acts of Peter thirty two. 
a great multitude assembled on the sacred way to see Simon flying because he was able to levitate. <laughs> and Peter, Peter, seeing the strangest of the sight, cried to the Lord Jesus Christ, hasten thy grace, O Lord, and let him fall from his heights. <laughs> and so apparently, according to this apocryphal thing, uh, Simon fell down. And I don't know if you remember this uh, on our deep in history pilgrimage in the last fall. We had said mass at the Church of St. Francis of Rome. Oh, yes. In the, in the Roman Forum. That church is built on the place where Simon crash landed. <laughs> really? And it's fascinating. And, and in the wall of the church, um, there's a stone that uh, allegedly has the impression of Peter, Peter's knees as he's kneeling and praying to the Lord for <laughs> it's just fascinating, yeah. huh? And it goes on, you know, it, it goes on, um, uh, St. Hippolytus, um, who is going to be writing just a few years after Irenaeus, talks about um, Simon's days in Rome um, and how he came in conflict with Simon Peter again and again. Um, uh, Hippolytus said that he boasted that he would rise again on the third day after his after his death, and so he ordered himself to be buried alive. Um, and then Hippolytus says, with a sweet, ironic voice, he says, "He still remains there to this very day." <laughs> but but, um, but Saint Irenaeus certainly knows of this tradition, and if you look in, um, I wanted to point out uh, in in. In book one, um, let me get the text out here. Um, chapter 23, page 68 and 69 and 70. I won't read all that, but um, book one, chapter 23, is St. Irenaeus talking about the origins of the Gnostic heresy and gives us some details about um, about Simon, who he was and what he was taught, what he was teaching. And I think just uh, four points I want to pull out of there really quickly. I won't go through all this because it's a lengthy thing. But right. in section one, um, uh, Irenaeus talks about his encounter with the apostles and his subsequent coming to Rome, where his teachings were perceived in Rome to be a threat, a serious threat to the early church. Hmm. Um, um, and so that, that in section one, it in, introduces us to this basic idea. And here we also find out um, Irenaeus re, re, repeats what we learned from Justin Martyr, that he was under Claudius Caesar, by whom he is also said to have been honored with a statue for his magical skill. So um, a little bit about, um, about his presence in the Church of Rome and the encounters that he would have had with Peter. And in section two, um, he talks a little bit about this extraordinary relationship he has with this Helena, 
a slave that he had purchased from Tyre in Phoenicia. Um, and, and he began to spin this incredible idea that his wife, Helena, um, she was descended of Helen of Troy. She was Helen of Troy. She was, uh, he just, he said, she had a supernatural origin. She was the mother of the angels. And when the angels fell, um, they dragged her down with them and they confined her in, in a human body. And she just basically moved around um, the transmigration of souls, if you will, um, until she was living as in the body of a prostitute um, in Tyre. And then um, Simon came along and rescued her. Simon, at this point, um, he, I mean, he claimed that his primordial origins were, he was at some point, sometimes he claimed that he was God the Father. Sometimes he claimed that he was the Son and would occasionally claim that he was also the Holy Spirit. Um, so he gives all these details about Simon's, um, what he, his claim to divinity, if you will, in section three on page 70. Um, uh, he, was, he, he was the Logos, and he entered the world in the form of a man, though he was not a man. So he, he came in to appear as a man among men, though he was not a man. Um, so there's that early heresy of docetism, mm -hmm. where, where the Son of God only appears to be in human form. He, he's pure spirit. Um, so we find that heresy here. And it says that he came to counter um, the teachings of the prophets. Um, the prophets, he says, were inspired with their prophecies by the angels who made the world. Well, there is another version or another element of Gnosticism, uh, the Marcionites, um, that, uh, that Christ sets himself over against the teaching of the prophets and the revelation that we have in the Old Testament. Um, so uh, the other, the third point here about um, what he he claimed to do is, you, you'll appreciate this, Marcus. This is, um, as he brings this message to the people, he says, as they are free persons, they should do as they please. For man, for that man are saved by his grace and not by good works. <laughs> yeah. And, and so here you have this, the third point is that um, he, is, he is promoting this ex extraordinary antinomianism that because we're spirit, what we do in our bodies, in the flesh, it has nothing to do with our spirit. So um, some Gnostics just were completely immoral and did whatever they want. And, uh, and um, Irenaeus here traces him back to them. And then in that, the fourth section, and I'll just, I'll stop at that point. He talks about their followers, especially in Rome, um, Simon and Helen, Mr. and Mrs. 
sorcerer here. Um, they are worshipped by their followers um, using the images of Minerva and Jupiter. And they are adored by them. And that their priests practice magic and theurgy, which is uh, a, a fancy word that speaks about how if you only say the right things and do the right things ritually, um, you can get the gods to do whatever you would hope them to do. Um, and it's, I mean, that in a nutshell, that is uh, how the Irenaeus has, has looked in and found in the early teachings of Simon, this tradition that he's drawing on, all of the essential elements of what the Gnostics are going to be teaching about in their, in their later iterations. It's so, it's interesting that Paul is writing in Galatians, in the beginning of the book of Galatians, when he says he's astounded that so many of you are so quickly following other Gospels. And at that very time, he's probably writing Galatians. This yeah. Simon has already made his way to Rome. Yeah. And, you know, and we, I mean, again, we're just, I was, I did not realize how much early Christian literature focused on Simon. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we've been looking at the principal church fathers, but when you go into some of the, um, the more apocryphal levels of things like the, the Clementine homilies that are attributed to Clement of, of um, Rome, though they aren't Clements, but um, they're full. Of, um, of of Simon's activities, huh. and he's he basically he shadows Peter wherever Peter goes um, from Jerusalem um, up to Antioch, yeah. over to Rome. He is shadowing Peter, and he's trying to discredit Peter, um, and it's just that those Clementine homilies are just full of fictional accounts of um, disputations that Peter and, and Simon have with each other. I, I guess today we'd think of it as kind of historical fiction. Um, but, um, but, but, it, but it was written clearly, during the time um, period. So. This, this had a, yeah, it yeah, is. It's yes. written during the time period, so it's not like something written 800 years later going, but it's the time period. So, but... You know, you ask yourself, you know, here's Simon thinking he's God the Father and all these things. Is he crazy? Or, <laughs> or, or do we have somebody, what happens when their conscience becomes so dead that they, can, they know yeah. they can get away with saying anything and they have the charismatic ability to influence people by what they say, that they know they can get away with it and they no longer fear God it's a good thing none of those people exist anymore. I mean, uh, they're on TV. There are people preaching all kinds of things for money, health and wealth gospel. I think you know if you if, you know if you, do you have Volkswagen faith or Cadillac faith? Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's out there, and I just I'm going to jump ahead just as closing. Sure. Next yes, week, course. what we're going to do next week, everyone, is we're going to 
complete book one. And uh, particularly Monsignor is going to go through, there's a long list of all these followers of Simon. And he'll pick out a few to talk about. I have a couple sections we'll do, but I just wanted to close with a statement in on page 79. It's chapter 27, paragraph 4, in which Irenaeus says, But we were obliged to mention him now, he's talking about Marcion at this point, that thou mightst know of all who in any way adulterate the truth and damage the preaching of the church, how that they are disciples and successors of Simon the sorcerer of Samaria. And so there's the point. Irenaeus is saying, let's begin with this guy. Let me show you how crazy he got so quickly and then how it spread. And we'll talk about that next week. And when we leave communion with Peter and his successors, how crazy it gets out there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and that's why Irenaeus says, don't leave. Hold to the truth, the rule of faith. You know, trust that. Monsignor, could you close us with a blessing prayer? Yes, okay. We thank you, blessed Lord, for the life and witness of your servant, St. Irenaeus. And we pray that with his prayers and with the prayers and the help of all the saints and the angels, that we may be faithful and true to the gospel that you delivered through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor, for joining us today. Thank you. And thank all of you for joining us on this episode of Deep in History. We look forward to being with you again next week. God bless. Blessings.